Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Cady. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from our series, Upside Down, a verse-by-verse study of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Here's Pastor Nick. Please open with me in your Bibles to 1st Thessalonians. That's Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians in your New Testament. And, uh, you know, God's given you a table of contents. If you need to use it, don't be shy. Also, uh, if you use the Bible on your phone, we encourage you to do that. There's a great app called the YouVersion Bible app, and there's, there's others as well. But we encourage you, however you've got the Bible with you today, please read along. Our text comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. On Sunday mornings, we're studying through the letters of 1 and 2 Thessalonians. So it's kind of like golf. We just pick up uh, where the ball fell last week. And so that's what we're doing today, starting in verse 13 of chapter 4. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of, a, of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, as we study your word this morning, we ask that you would give us insight into it, Lord, that we might understand, that we might apply these things to our lives, and Lord, that we might become the people you desire to make us into. So Lord, give us receptive hearts and responsive hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, this text it comes from a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in the Greek city of Thessalonica. Uh, Thessalonica is an interesting city because it's one of the uh, only, you know, continually inhabited, inhabited cities from ancient times, from antiquity. It's still a major city in Greece today, but the ancient part of the city is a little bit outside of the city center today, and there have been a lot of archaeological digs. And so in uh, one of the archaeological digs several years ago, uh, they uncovered the remains of a pagan cemetery in this city that we're reading this letter written to in Thessalonica. And what they found as they uncovered this cemetery, they found several tombstones which were all inscribed with the same inscription in Greek. And the inscription said in Greek, no hope, no hope. That is how people in this city thought when it came to death, that there is no hope beyond the grave. There might be hope in this life, but really at the end of the day, Death has the final word. There's nothing to hope in beyond the grave. And it really doesn't take a genius or a lot of thinking to realize that if there's no hope beyond the grave, well, then there's actually no hope for this life either. Because really think about it. What is the point after all if we just live meaningless lives, working in order to eke out a a meager existence, right? Just trying to put food in our mouths only just to one day get old, fall apart, and die. If there is no hope beyond death, then there is no meaning in life. And as the Greeks of that time said, they're absolutely right. There is no hope. When they summarized what life all comes down to in the end, when you look back on all of it, that was what they said. It's all summarized in these two words, no hope. And it is to this setting 
that Paul the Apostle writes this letter to the Christians who lived in this city, he says these words. What does he say there in the first verse that we read? I do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, so that you may not grieve as those who have what? No hope. See, what Paul is telling them is that as Christians, we now have a completely different way of thinking about life and death and everything in between, right? Everything that's encompassed in that because of what Jesus did, but not only what he did, but what he will do. See, to be a Christian is to be what I like to call an optimist right? An optimist fit. That's somebody who doesn't fit in. They stand out from the crowd. Why? Because they have a hope that is different than the world around them. Because of Jesus, we have a hope in life and in death that gives us a completely different outlook on everything. We have completely different expectations about what this life is going to bring. You see, as Christians, we believe that no matter what is happening in our lives currently, the best is yet to come. No matter if it's really good right now or no matter if it's really hard right now, we believe that the best is yet to come. See, the Apostle Paul, the man who wrote this letter, he was himself an optimist fit, somebody who didn't fit in. He stuck out. See, the thing about Paul is that he suffered greatly. He, he lived with chronic pain, for example. Maybe some of you can relate to that. He faced, aside from that, he faced calamity and mistreatment, and yet his life somehow was characterized by joy and by a sense of optimism when it came to thinking about the future. Now, the Thessalonian Christians, they were facing some major hardships and difficulties. They were being persecuted because of their faith. See, when they put their faith in Jesus, their lives did not get easier. Quite the opposite. Their lives got much harder almost immediately. Many of them were attacked. They were persecuted. They were beaten up. They lost their jobs. And on top of that, what we read in this section is that as all these things were happening, kind of the cherry on top was that their friends began to die. People in their congregation, their loved ones, their family members began to die. And in a situation like that, you wonder, how do you stay afloat? How do you keep from drowning under that, uh, those waves of grief, those waves of sorrow and hardship? And many of you, maybe you've experienced that in your own lives. And maybe some of you are going through something like that right now. You know, I was in my garage this weekend and I, I found something. I'm going to so this is a, a life jacket. It's, it's kind of small on me, so I'm not going to try and put it on. But so I was in my garage and uh, kind of cleaning things up, and I found this life jacket. And I was just thinking about this thing, because if you think about it, what is this, right? This is like a couple dollars worth of foam, uh, some clips, some plastic clips. I mean, really cheap, right? And like some thin nylon material. There's really not a lot to this. It's quite a simple thing. It's quite a, you know, very basic device. However, this can be the difference between life and death when it comes to drowning in the open sea. You know, sometimes when we face grief in our lives, it can feel like we've been tossed out of a helicopter into the open sea, right? And they're just getting beat by waves and we're trying to stay afloat and it's just sucking us under. And you wonder, how can you survive grief and hardship and sorrow and stay on top well, it's kind of like what we need is a life preserver for our souls. You see, two people can be thrown into the same ocean, right, into the same open sea. But just having that equipment, right, being equipped with the right thing can be a matter of life and death, can be a matter of surviving and drowning. And in the same way, there are some simple truths and some simple promises, which if you are equipped with them, they will act like a life jacket for your soul. And they will enable you, even in the midst of hardship and grief, not to be dragged under and destroyed, but to rise up and have hope. 
You know, I'm not talking about, by the way, I want to make sure that you understand. I'm not talking about being optimistic just for the sake of being optimistic. I'm not talking about the power of positive thinking. I'm not talking about just kind of telling yourself that everything's going to be okay. See, for many people, what I've experienced when we talk about optimism, it's kind of like cotton candy, right? It's sweet and sugary, but it doesn't have a lot of substance. There's nothing you can really grasp onto. There's no substance to it. I was thinking about a time in my life, which was very difficult. My, my daughter, my, my middle child, she was in a coma. And so I, I reached out to a friend uh, looking for encouragement and hope in this time. And what he told me was, he said, don't worry about it. Everything's going to be fine. Now, I realized that my friend was trying to be helpful, but what he said didn't help me at all. In fact, it frustrated me and it made me upset. You know why? Because he was trying to give me hope, but there was no basis for that hope. There was no substance to that hope. Why should I not worry? Give me something to hold on to. How do you know that everything's going to be fine? What if it's not? Right? I didn't want empty platitudes in that moment. What I wanted was something of substance that I could grab onto, that I could hold onto. What I needed was a life jacket that could hold me up through the rough storms of life. And the truth is that in Jesus, and I'll say this only in Jesus, can we find that kind of hope, the kind of hope that can turn us really into optimists. And so here in this section, I've got three points for you. Three big things that Paul tells us that are the secret to being this kind of person, an optimist fit. Here's the first. Knowledge changes everything. So that's the first. Knowledge changes everything. Secondly, death is only temporary. And thirdly, some restrictions may apply. Some restrictions may apply. We'll talk about that in a second. So let's talk about this first one. Knowledge changes everything. He begins in verse 13 by saying this. Brothers, we do not want you to be uninformed or ignorant about those who have fallen asleep so that you may not grieve as those who have no hope. See, here's the thing. What you know changes how you think and how you feel. What you know changes how you think and how you feel. You know, it's really interesting when you consider that one of the most uh, popular viewpoints these days when it comes to spirituality and God and things regarding what happens to a person when they die is called agnosticism. So if you look at statistics, you know, what you find is that there are actually very few true atheists out there, very few actually. Most people, and, and really an increasing number of people, identify as agnostics. And what, what that means is that if you ask them something about God, if you ask them what they believe about the afterlife or about spirituality, the answer is always, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I just don't, I don't know. What is God like? I don't know. Like, is, which God is it? You know, I don't know. Is there heaven or hell? I don't know. Maybe. You've been listening to a message by Pastor Nick Cady of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We'll get back to the remainder of this message in a moment. We are open for in-person worship on Sunday mornings with services at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. Come grow with us on Sunday mornings, online or in person at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. Now, back to Pastor Nick with the remainder of today's message. And when it comes to different beliefs about, you know, life, death, heaven, and hell, whatever it is, the answer is always... Maybe, I don't know. And again, that's a very popular position in our society today because if you're agnostic, you never have to take a firm position on anything. And that, that's attractive to people, right? You can always just say, I don't know. Now, the word agnostic comes from Greek and it literally means in Greek, without knowledge. That's all it means, without knowledge. And 
here's the thing that's interesting. If you read this verse in Greek, the language it was originally written in, Paul literally says here in verse 13, he says, I do not want you to be agnostic when it comes to this issue. I don't want you to be agnostic when it comes to this issue. Which issue? The issue of what happens to a person when they die. Paul is saying, I don't want you to be agnostic when it comes to this. Why? Well, two things. Number one, being, not, being unclear, right? Not being clear can lead to unwarranted fear. So not being clear can lead to unwarranted fear. That was what was happening here in Thessalonica. But on the other hand, I would also say that not being clear can also lead to unwarranted confidence. Have you ever met somebody who had a lot of confidence that they really shouldn't have had, right? Like I've met these people, they've got all the confidence in the world, but it is unwarranted confidence. They should not have that confidence. In fact, their confidence is dangerous to them because it's going to lead them to do something that they have no business doing. So when uh, my daughter, the same daughter uh, I was mentioning earlier, when she was little, like around two, she had this toy airplane, right? It's kind of like a, it had wheels on it and these wings that came out and she would ride it around our house. And where we lived, like our main living area was up this steep flight of stairs and then you had to go downstairs to get into the kitchen. So, um, you know, we had like this long hallway that led into the staircase that was very steep and definitely not up to code, right? And so uh, when my daughter was little, she, she was convinced that this airplane was going to fly and she would always tell us, I fly, you know, I fly. And she would like, uh, really, she was really confident. And she had this thing in her mind. I'm not sure where she got it, that if she could just get a running start at this staircase, that she would just safely, you know, glide down to the bottom. Now, again, she was without knowledge, right? Like she was without knowledge of stuff like science and physics and gravity and um, aerodynamics. And her lack of knowledge was a liability, right? Because it was leading her to have unwarranted confidence, which was potentially disastrous, and so as her parents, what did we have to do? We had to constantly monitor. And several times we actually caught her like getting ready to make her approach to fly off the stairs. See, when it comes to matters of eternity, uh, un, you know, lack of knowledge can either lead to unwarranted fear, but it can also lead to unwarranted confidence, which is perhaps even more dangerous. See, when it comes to matters of eternity and what will happen to a person when they die, it's pretty important. And Paul says, you cannot afford to be uninformed when it comes to this topic. So the Christians in Thessalonica, they were confused, and their confusion was causing them some consternation and some worry. And uh, specifically, what they were confused about was some things that Paul had taught them regarding the return of Jesus, the return of Jesus. See, Paul had only been with the Thessalonians for three to four weeks. We know that. And then he, he ended up having to flee town because people were trying to kill him. And so he only had three to four weeks to teach these guys everything he could about Jesus, everything they needed to know about Jesus in the Bible. And so during the short time that Paul was there with the Thessalonians, he taught them about Jesus. He taught them that Jesus was God come to us, that Jesus had come into the world. He had lived a sinless life. He had died a sacrificial death to atone for our sins. And then he had resurrected from the dead on the third day. He had ascended into heaven and he told them the next step, which was this, that one day he was going to come again for them. He was going to return. 
Now, why did Paul, if he had such a short time with them, why did he bother going into this stuff about the return of Jesus? I mean, isn't that kind of just fringe, obscure stuff? Well, not really, if you consider the fact that this is one of the main things that Jesus taught his own disciples, right? Whenever Jesus talked about, hey, guys, here's what I've come to do. Here's what's going to happen. He talked about how he was going to go away and then return. For example, in John chapter 14, at the Last Supper, right? The Last Supper is a pretty big deal. So Jesus is at the Last Supper. We read this in the, the beginning of John chapter 14. Jesus tells his disciples, guys, I am going away, but it is to your advantage if I go away. Because if I go away, I will prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. And then he said this, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will return. So here's Jesus saying that he's going to go away, and then he says, I will come again. This is called the second coming. Now, continuing in that same verse, so John chapter 14, verse 3, Jesus speaking, here's what he says. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and then I will take you, I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. So Jesus was constantly telling his disciples about his death, about his resurrection, that he was going away for a time, during which time he would give them a mission and the Holy Spirit to empower them to carry out that mission. And then he said, after that, at some point, I'm going to return. Now, Jesus didn't tell them when that would happen. He said, I'm going to come like a thief in the night. I'm not going to send you any like text message notifications. I'm not going to send you like a save the date in the mail or anything. I'm just going to show up one day. So be prepared. I'm not going to tell you when it is. Be prepared. It could happen at any time, and I'm not going to tell you when it is. Now, in the Bible, the second coming of Jesus, this is sometimes called the day of the Lord. This is one of the major themes that runs throughout the entire Bible, right? To give you some perspective, it is mentioned 1,845 times in the Bible. Now, maybe you're like, well, I don't know what that means because the Bible seems like a pretty big book. Let me give you some, some scope on that. That is eight times as many times as the first coming of Jesus is foretold, right? So eight times more, the second coming is talked about and foretold. It's a major theme in the Bible. It's really at the center of our hope as Christians, right? Our hope is that one day Jesus is going to return. The Lord is going to come and he will make all things right. And so when Paul told the Thessalonians about Jesus, he couldn't leave this out, right? He, he didn't just tell them what Jesus had done in his first coming. He also had to tell them what Jesus was going to do in his second coming and that it was coming very soon. So why were the Thessalonians confused? What are they upset about and worried about? Well, the main issue is basically this. You could summarize it in this way, that what the Thessalonians didn't understand is the difference between imminent and immediate. Imminent and immediate. Imminent means it could happen at any moment. Immediate means it is going to happen in the very next moment, right? So what they understood, they thought Jesus was coming back immediately. What Jesus had said is that he's coming back imminently. So Jesus, you know, he said it could happen at any time, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen right away. It could be now, it could be later. Now, this led to some problems for the Thessalonians. We're going to see that not only in this letter, but also in 2 Thessalonians as we continue into that when we're done with 1 Thessalonians. But uh, one of the things we're going to see, especially in 2 Thessalonians, is that they were really excited when they heard that Jesus was coming back. And they were like, if Jesus is coming back, 
well, then we might as well quit our jobs and max out our credit cards because Jesus is coming back probably like next week, maybe on Tuesday, right? Like it could happen any day, maybe tomorrow. Let's just go max out the credit cards. We'll quit our jobs. We're not going to work like a bunch of losers. Jesus is coming back, right? And so we'll just eat the food that we have. And by the time we're done with that, I mean, he should be here. And uh, that didn't happen, right? And so that caused some problems. Now, in a way, I find it kind of hard to criticize the Thessalonians. It's, we, in a way, I kind of admire them. You know why? Because what they were doing was simply, completely in line with what Jesus had said. They were simply believing what Jesus had said. Maybe believing it a little too much, right? They're like, Jesus said, I'm coming back, and it could happen anytime, and they believed it, and they were excited. They were stoked about it, and they lived in full expectation that it could happen, not just in their lifetime, but it could happen any day. Every single day, they expected it might happen. But then, of course, a few days, because it wasn't immediate, it was imminent, right? The difference there. A few days went by, and uh, a few weeks then went by. Then a few months went by, and then a year, and Jesus still hadn't returned. And so some of them started to get a little bit jaded, right? Like, they're, they're like, hey, what was all this stuff you said about Jesus coming back? Like, he's not here yet, you know, and is this really like a thing? Is this really going to happen, or, or did we misunderstand? And, and then the other thing that happened was, as time went by, some of the believers started to die, and that really shook them up, right? Like somebody had an accident at work and they die. Somebody else was getting, you know, advanced in years and they die of old age. Somebody else gets cancer. And one by one, you know, they start going to these funerals. They start going to the graveyard. And it seems, what they're experiencing seems to contradict what Paul had told them about God's plan for their lives and the return of Jesus, right? And so they thought Jesus was going to come back any day, but now he hadn't come back. People were dying and they're getting worried. Like, does this mean that those who died before Jesus returned, are they somehow going to miss out on going to heaven? Are they going to miss out when Jesus does return? And Paul is writing this part of the letter to say, no, guys, let me just clear this up for you. They are not going to miss out on anything. In fact, they're going to be at the front of the line, right? When Jesus returns, they're actually going to be coming back with him. They're going to be the first to experience the resurrection. There's no need to be worried about those believers who have died before Jesus' return. See, guys, for us too, the same is true. Jesus' return is imminent, but that doesn't mean it's immediate. So it's imminent, but not necessarily immediate. It could happen at any time, or it might be a while. We don't know. In fact, Jesus purposefully made sure that we don't know. Now, you might wonder, why would Jesus not want us to know? I mean, isn't it good for us to know stuff? Well, here's why. Because he knew that he wanted us to live Every Christian in every generation until he came back, he wants us to live with an expectation that it could be at any time and also a sense of urgency that the time may be short, right? Like today could be the day and there might be not much time left. And so when it comes to the mission that he's given us, there needs to be a sense of urgency. And so he didn't tell us when. He said it's imminent, but you're just going to have to be ready all the time. And the fact is this, guys, with every passing day, we are that much closer to the day when he will return. So we're closer than we've ever been. I guess we could put it that way. The, the first big key to being an optimist fit is this. Knowledge changes everything. We cannot afford to be agnostic when it comes to matters of life and death and our souls and eternity. So what is it that we need to know if, if knowledge is so important? Well, that brings us to our second point. Uh, the second big key to being an optimist fit is this. Death is only temporary. Death is only temporary. See, one of the things that makes death so difficult for those of you who've experienced it 
is that it feels so final, doesn't it? It feels so final when they close the lid on that casket, when they lower that body into the ground, when they cover it with dirt again. It feels so final. It feels like a lid has been closed on all of your hopes and all of your dreams for that person, on any future possibility of ever seeing them again, ever embracing them again. It feels so final that it's gone forever and it's done. The lid is closed. It's been covered up and buried in the ground. In fact, we have a term that we use for someone's grave, their casket. We call it their final resting place. But guys, that phrase, final resting place, it has a note of finality, which from a, from a Christian perspective is not true. See, that's why Paul says this phrase. He actually says it three times in this one little section, right? We covered like six verses and he says this three times. He says it in verse 13, verse 14, and verse 15. He used this phrase, those who have fallen asleep. He's actually gonna use it again in chapter five. Those who have fallen asleep. That's the phrase he uses to describe believers who have died. See, he wants us to understand that it is not final, that it's not permanent, that for a Christian, the grave does not have the final word, but rather like a seed going into the ground, it's going to rise again. It's going to be transformed in a new and better form. In fact, did you know that the word cemetery, that's a word that Christians came up with. See, in Latin, the word cemetery literally is the same word that we use for dormitory. You've been listening to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We have three in-person services on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. And our 9.30 and 11 services are live streamed on our website for those who would like to worship with us online. We are located just east of County Line Road and Highway 119 at 2950 Colorful Avenue in Longmont. For more information or to hear other messages from Pastor Nick, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. Be Set Free is a listener-supported program. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support this ministry, you can send a donation via check to 2950 Colorful Avenue, Longmont, Colorado, 80504, or donate online at besetfreeradio.com. Thank you.